Today I welcome Ian College, Executive Principal of Raha International School in Abu Dhabi. In this episode, I discuss the merits of the IB, the International Baccalaureate, leading one school vision, managing organisational change and the transferable skills of head teachers. It's been really important for me actually because I've actually missed like going to schools and chatting to heads and going to conferences and and just that 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 sense of conversation and leadership and sharing ideas what's going on and the social element of it all so yeah. it was it was a really important thing for me to go okay how can I do that I don't want to do a webinar I don't want to do stuff I want to do something that's meaningful and interesting and also give heads an opportunity around the world to to kind of talk about what's going on in their world um, to humanize heads in a way as well because being a leader in an independent school wherever you are it can be a lonely place at, and you know part of it is to kind of break down some of that and go look you're, you're still you know human uh, like the rest of us um, what makes you tick what are things going on in your life um, likes dislikes so it's a balance between kind of looking at current affairs some of the topics going on um, leadership in, in education you've obviously done a huge amount because of a a taking Raha to where it was with one school but then creating a second school to the same level of success already in such a short period of time in terms of capacity, energy, um, it's been quite incredible. Tell me how that journey's been. Uh, do you know what? If COVID didn't exist, then yes, it, easy is not the right word. It's never easy, but yeah. honestly, I've got the most incredible team. What you may not be aware of is I'm actually overseeing the other three IB schools as now as well now. So I run Raha and oversee the IB cluster in Dubai. Um, so I'm not, not every day in there, but it's kind of like a, almost a director of education role overseeing them too. Um, so my job's kind of expanded, but I've got two vice principals in there. So it's all about the, um, making sure that you've got the capacity and leadership below you so you can spread your wings a bit more and focus on the growth whilst others run the day-to-day stuff. It's been quite a, the, the whole management, the, 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 the whole, I mean, I spent my whole life writing organograms. Genuinely, that's all I do. I rewrite organograms, we tweak them, we write job description. That's all we do constantly, like evolving to say, what do we need next year, next year for the next bit? What do we need next year for the next bit? I know my job's moving away a little bit and others are stepping in. How does their jobs work? And it's just a... And do, you think, and, and do you think that's a normal kind of process now for a modern organisation is that roles change, organisations have to pivot and, and shift. And so you've constantly got to look at your team what you're capable of, your skills, but also what you can deliver and then shift accordingly. I do. I do. I think what's interesting is we always try to um, depersonalize when we do organograms. You know, say it's just about the role. What should the role give you? But that's, that's in reality, that rarely happens. You've still got a person who's got a certain skill set, which you need to, to, to sort of uh, make, use, use to the best of your ability in the school. But I think that agility is critical. I think, I think in many organisations it wouldn't happen maybe as often as it is for us because our growth rate is just truly enormous and the structure and the, and the way we're having to develop two campuses, one vision um, and maintain that consistency in one school on two campuses has meant every, well, honestly, I've spent more hours talking about organograms than, than I think I've ever done. I actually really enjoy it. And I love kind of looking at management and leadership and size um, and, and also making sure that Again, making sure that you're future-proofing what you're doing so you've yep. got the capacity to do the next step you're never left behind. So you do actually have the ability to 
breathe a little and think a little. I think the biggest problem in leadership these days is you're just problem solving, problem solving, and you're just catching your feet. That hasn't really changed. We're still doing that. But because we've got good capacity now in our leadership, I can sometimes actually just stop and think uh, and plan and, you know, have, you know, have a whole day out with the leadership team and just forget work and actually, well, it is work, but forget the day-to-day stuff but look to the head. And that capacity is just critical. If not, you're, you're going to get stuck and you're going you're gonna to hit problem after problem and actually not continue to improve. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, you, you talk about vision because, you know, you, you need a vision, you need a plan. A lot of, a lot of schools, I think, talk around their, their strategic plan, um, but, but many fail to kind of live into it because of the right, you know, they, they stay with almost like the same structure and they, and they don't think to change to make sure that happens. Um, are you making sure that all the things that you're putting in place is going to deliver on the vision and the growth that you're that you're seeing at, at at Raha, and is this a product of just a buoyant market, or are you really having to to stand out? Um, yeah, I think what's interesting is the vision itself is not right now the most important thing for us. We've already got a very strong identity, so that's not necessarily changing. What's important is what we call one vision. You'll hear people singing songs about one vision around school. It's quite funny, but. One vision is all about having two campuses, but one school. So we, the, the, and the challenge of, of making sure a second campus works, not identically, but, but, but is the same school, has the same yeah. field. Culturally. Culture. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's everything. It's absolutely everything. To do that is very, very difficult. So the challenge we've got is making sure our one vision strategy is actually successful. Um, we've worked a lot. We've spent a lot of time at United World College um, working with them in Singapore a couple of years ago as we moved towards this project and how they've expanded to two campuses, two and a half thousand kids on each. Very, very similar to what we're doing now. They did 10 years ago. Um, and we went there and we learned from their mistakes, their successes and listened to them. And one of the things we're going through now is kind of strategy with our senior team is something called Who Owns the D? Um, and that's Who Owns the Decisions? Because my job, as it's got bigger, I've had to give up an awful lot more decision-making um, and allow autonomy for the people below me to just get on with it. And if you make a mistake, so be it. That's the way it is. So I can't step on people's toes. They can move quickly. They can move fast. And this whole who owns the D and who's responsible for making decisions, bringing problems, it's the most fascinating thing I've ever done professionally. And do you find it easy to no delegate question. to allow that to happen? Because, again, when, when, when you are a visionary leader and you go in there and you drive success, you know, you're, you're driving a lot of it. And there, there's, always a, there's always a case where you think, oh, well, I can still do that piece. I can still do that piece. I can still do that piece maybe a little bit better. Um, yeah. it, it, <laughs> it, takes, it takes a strong leader to go, okay, I know I could probably do that, but... I'm empowering you. I'm going to give you all the, the support you need, but you're going to go off and do that because that's about developing people and that's how you develop great teams. Do you find the delegation bit easy? Has it become easier or has it always been easy? Uh, no, God, it was really hard because I simply can't manage a two-campus school of 2,500 kids, which will be 3,000 next year and still be doing micro stuff. It, it, it's absolutely impossible. Yeah. So I have to step back. Um, so there's a practical side to it, which means I'm finding it easier. But also one of the things I'm sort of really, I really strive for is to actually employ people who are better than me um, as much as I can. I've got no issue with people who are better than me. And I think I've now got such a strong team that I, I, I do let them go. 
I mean, don't get me wrong, there are times when I, I, I will see something and go, I would not have done it that way, I'd have done it differently, I might have written a letter differently or made a different decision. But actually what's happening is not wrong, it's not damaged anything, it's just different. And it is very difficult to, to, um, to let that go, but you simply have to. Otherwise, you're just going to get bogged down in making decisions for people and the school will stand still and you won't be empowering them because we all make mistakes. And, uh, you know, the, the, the only thing worse than making no de- so a bad decision is no decision at all. So you've got to let the team get on with it. Yeah, agreed, agreed. I, and I'm, I'm cut from the same cloth as you. I found it very, very difficult. And I remember a mentor of mine um, only quite recently just said, Simon, you know, you cannot be the best in the room. You've got to surround yourself with people that are much better than you because that's the only way that you can step back and actually create something that can run itself. You'll be very brave to, to lead a growing organization, I think. And, you know, there's times when I'm kind of watching them running around like a headless chicken and I might actually have a bit of downtime. And there's a bit of guilt in that as well. I'm not saying I'm sitting my feet up every day, but there are times where there's stuff I would have done. You know, I've passed on a lot of my line management responsibilities in the last uh, few months as well, where I only got stuck in there and I'm, someone else is doing it. And I'm thinking, okay, this is, this is great. And you think, but, but what do I do now? What do I do? You forget the fact that your job is changing to not so much be organizational day to day. It is much, much more about strategy and vision. Yeah. And that, I think it's a different type of work. Um, it, it's just a good transition. I, I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying it. But you know, it's, it's sometimes hard to, to marry up with the, I want to get stuck in all the time. Yeah. And, yeah, and I, I completely, well, it completely resonates with me. Um, I, find, I find exactly the same. And, you know, you never get it right. Um, you, you try your best to employ the right people. Um, and you have to empower them. Otherwise, an organization cannot grow. What you've got to do, and I think what heads have got to do, is drive, drive some leadership, some vision, something for people to aim for and strive for that they can believe in. It's a cultural belief. And then they're all behind you. Um, so it's great. And, you know, Raha is, um, is, is doing such a fantastic job. You know, I, I thoroughly enjoyed my time when I've come and visited you and seen what's going on. You can just feel it. And that's what schools struggle with. They all talk about it, but they struggle with that bit about when you turn up there you just feel something magical um and has that been difficult to nurture with your staff and your parents and your kids or has it just been something that's happened quite easily it's i think it's always hard to pinpoint um where you can say culture always comes from the top you know and, and you, you lead it down you set the culture i think that, that that's true in many ways but it's hard to to, to really pinpoint how how you create it, how you create that magic. Um, and, and I think for me, more than anything, it's probably about um, doing as you say, you know, don't just preach it and walk away, actually act and behave that way. You know, so we're, we, we, we strive on being a, a, a big school, a small family. That's, that's, that's a big mantra for us. And being a happy school and having a great culture and having fun. Yes, we work really hard. And I think if I'm, if I'm doing all those things along the way and modeling that, I think that's really important. I have fun. I'm on the gate with the parents and then I'll go in, I'll work hard. Um, we have a laugh, we have a giggle. Um, and that's absolutely critical. There's laughter everywhere. Um, and I like to have fun and not take things too seriously either. Behind the scenes, you obviously know you are. You're thinking very seriously. But if you're modeling that, that behavior at all times, um, people just go with you on it. If you're a glum person who takes things seriously, people around you are going to go, okay, that's, that's the way it is. We'll all be that way or you end up putting them off. So the more open you are, uh, the, more, the more you say 
uh, and this is something that we quite often say yes to people. If someone's got an idea, just crack on. Just, yeah, fine, whatever. I, I, we're in a very fortunate position where the school is outstanding, so we're pretty robust. So if someone has an idea and it fails, the, the ship isn't going to sink. Yeah. You know, it might tweak a little and you, you rejig it. But um, so I think we're, you know, if you're a school which, which maybe wasn't as robust and you, you, you had a risky initiative, you might not want to do that. You might want to get the basics right first. Um, but, you know, staff come to me a lot and say, can I try this, can I try that? Yeah, sure. I mean, why not? What's, what's the worst that can happen? Give it a go. And that culture of innovation and, yeah, cool, we can try things. It doesn't really matter. And, you know, and a lot of things often then work uh, and enhance the school considerably. Exactly. And as an initiative, what that's doing as well is it's breeding a culture of stewardship and leadership within your within your staff, but also the pupils, because, you know, we are got, we've got to teach our young men and women to be able to take risks and they will fail. They will fail more times than they probably succeed. But having that 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 kind of give it a go attitude, knowing that they're in a safe environment um, because we've got to keep trying new ideas and eventually an idea will come that is that there's a spark to something else that could be pretty incredible and could transform everything. So we've got to do that. So it's great that that you are pushing your staff and your and your community to come up with ideas because we need ideas. Um, mm. Not every idea is a great idea. I think there's sometimes, you know, some some very terrible ideas, but we've got to keep those ideas coming um, to to choose the right ones. You've been on quite a journey around the world. How have your travels influenced your outlook and education? considerably i think i think more not so much well education yes but i think they've developed my outlook on on how to deal with people um and i think that's been you know a huge thing for me you know i I think many nationalities and cultures they do behave differently um you know we don't like to stereotype and type and pigeonhole people but often a, a, a different a different nationality or a different culture does behave differently they want different things they talk differently they expect different things in any conversation you have and i think what you find when you're dealing with all these children and all these parents is that you have to be very agile to the receiver of the conversation the other person it's not about me being a perfect communicator in my way it's actually being a perfect communicator in their way um, and knowing what they want. Do they want lots of small talk? Do they just want to get to the point? Do, they, do you need to be firm with them? Do you need to sit and listen and be open with them? So the receiver, the other side of the person in any conversation is actually more important than you are. Um, so I think I've, I've really learned that all these different cultures need to be treated differently. Um, and you've got to really personalize your approach. Uh, and that to me is one of the biggest things. It's the same with children as well. You could say that in any school, you know, you differentiate your... You're, you're, you're teaching according to the student. And I think that, that just comes through all the way through with adults as well. But when you're adding sort of 80 odd nationalities into a school, and this is my, I think, seventh country now, and you know how different people work, you've got to adapt to them, not do what you think is right. Do you see yourself heading, heading home, or is, is home international now? Uh, yeah, I think home's international. I, you know, my, my, I, Honestly, my favourite country in the world is, is England. I, I love it passionately, but I think I love it more because I don't always live there. Um, I think yeah. anywhere you live for too long can grind you down. Uh, what I can never do is stay in one place for all that long because I, I get bored and I want a fresh outlook and a new adventure, and that's really important to me. Um, so for me, that, that sort of moving around is important. I did spend a year back in the UK... Um, I think it's maybe eight years ago now. Basically, took a year out 
myself a little consultancy company. I did my officer inspector training. Had a lovely year uh, with the idea of maybe we'll stay. And honestly, by February, when the rains came and it was dark at night and twitchy feet, got a phone call, do you want a job? I said, yeah, please. Back on the plane to Thailand again. Um, so I think, I, you know, I, I, I see us as a family staying overseas a while now. Then maybe I'll come home, do something, but we'll see. You never, yeah. you never know, do you really? I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. Talk, talk to me about um, the IB, the International Baccalaureate, because um, it's obviously something that the Raha um, are outstanding at. Um, it, it's one of those um, curriculum models that I think are really misunderstood and I say certainly in England, we're seeing a few more schools take it up. But what, what are the real big advantages and benefits of, of the IB? Yeah, it, it, is, it is misunderstood, particularly in the likes of the UK. I mean, I, um, when I set up um, North West Academies Trust, which is a UK Academy Trust, the first school we set up was a preschool in Chester. Um, and we put the PYP curriculum in. It was at the time one of only 12 schools in the whole country, state schools, which adopted the IB. Um, and it got outstanding in, immediately um, as a free school, which was pretty unheard of at the time. So it's got something very magical in it. And I, and I think it's, it's all about putting the child at the centre. Um, what I think the issue is with some curriculum, some schools, it's all about um, the results and the lead tables and learn this, learn that, learn the other. But actually the IB, you do learn it, but you learn it by inquiry. Um, and being brave as a teacher, being brave as a child, uh, and going out and finding things out for yourself, and then the passion for learning comes in a lot more. Um, and a lot of people, when you talk about it, it sounds woolly, uh, and that's a common, a common issue across the world. You say, yeah, but do you just leave the kids alone? Well, it's not a Montessori system where you do leave them alone more. There, are, there is structure, there is rigor, there are expectations, there is assessments. It all happens, but in a slightly more laissez-faire way, I think, for the children to be able to go and explore and do their own thing um, without the teacher standing at the front and teaching all the time. When we watch lessons, we, 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 we don't like a teacher talking for any more than 20% of a lesson. Uh, the kids should be doing the talking. Why, why does the teacher talk? The kids should be going and finding out their own knowledge and their own skills and, and doing their own thing because that's what's going to inspire them. Um, but then you get to the diploma at the end and, and there are rigorous very challenging exams and expectations so it's all there it's just done in a in a more a way which is more conducive for creating 21st century learners i think there's certainly kids out into the world who have to adapt to a very very rapidly changing world they have to think for themselves not just have a ton of knowledge they've got to think for themselves find things out for themselves um and they've got this building up this resilience i mean the ib learner profile has many attributes within it Resilience isn't one of them, but I think it should be the 11th one. Um, but but risk-taking is one of them. And for me, that is, to be honest with you, the, probably the biggest part of the IP. Um, if you're not taking risks as an adult, as a child throughout your life, you don't fail. If you don't fail, you don't succeed. Yeah. You just stick where you are and you don't get anywhere. So I think risk-taking is critical. It goes back to the say yes to, the, to, to people if they want to do something in school. Just give it a go. It's okay. And do you think that 
the IB is fit for all children or do you need a certain type of child to, to succeed and flourish? Yeah, this, we, we, we get this a lot. I think particularly, um, I have this debate regularly about A-levels and the IB diploma. Um, so forget the, sort of the culture low down the school necessarily, but just to focus on that. Uh, there are people who would say to me that the A-levels are much better for some children. And I, I do understand the argument because they're only maybe doing three subjects before they can focus on their area of strength. They might be a scientific, mathematically minded, and those are the only subjects they do. That's fine. I, I do get the, or they might be more music, art minded. Okay. But I think with the IB, where it really comes into its own is the fact that you've got to study maths all the way through. It doesn't have to be a particularly high level. But if you think at 16, you stop, you stop learning maths, that's, that, I think that's worrying, you know, because you can give it up at A level. The fact there's two languages in there. Some people would say languages may not be that important. And I think if you were, let's say, living in England or your home country, you didn't really need another language. That's fine. I, I understand that. But actually, the cognitive, um, the cognitive development you get from learning another language is critical, in addition to actually the language itself. So the fact you've got this broad range of subjects you're learning keeps you broad, keeps you more agile and more ready for the world ahead of you. So, which is why I think the IB, I do think the IB diploma is better. I do think everyone has the ability to do it. However, you might have a better pathway to university by choosing a narrower path or like the A-levels. But I do think it's, it could be for everybody. Yeah, um, yeah great, great answer, great insights. And I mean, you talk about the, the journey into university or the passage into university. Well, we know that employers really aren't that interested in, in what you get at university. So, you know, it throws up this whole debate about, you know, exam reform. Do we need, yes, we need some assessment. You know, children do need to be assessed to see how they're progressing. That, that's a really important part of feedback to see, am I learning? Am I growing? Am I developing? But this whole route into university, I think that is the biggest conversation we've got to have and around exam reform. We've seen it this last, this last year with lockdown, you know, just the way that, the, you know, they, they'd had to go on teacher grades. Um, you know, everything's still written down. It's, nothing's online. We haven't really moved that way. So I'm hoping that um, a bigger conversation is going to ha happen around the exam reform and also this route into university. It's not the be all and end all, you know. We've got to look, as you said, these 21st century children who are going to go out there um, and make a difference the employers care about them right and i, I do i agree i think that the ib has so many strengths that, that develops that whole child that we talk about in schools um maybe more than the strict you know gcse into a level um i mean what are yeah. your thoughts around exam reform and the, that kind of route into university do you think it's gonna it stays yeah, numbered? yes and no there are many successful people who choose not to go to university or maybe they can't afford to go to university or maybe they don't do so well at school and they don't get into university you have very successful lives and are very happy i mean what is success success isn't earning the biggest amount of money success isn't being about being the most popular the most famous success is about happiness more than anything else and being happy within yourself and that is success. so you don't need university but i think the issue is um in the, the, the issue isn't actually with the universities and exams it's with the employers um, I look at where I am in the UAE right now. You, you can barely get a job without a bachelor's degree. It's just an absolute prerequisite for no particular reason other than, oh, you must be this level of intelligence. Oh, this, yeah. therefore you must be ready for us. Um, 
And it's very, very frustrating for people because they may have not had that route when they were younger, but now they may be more intelligent, whatever you want to measure intelligence as, and ready for that world of work just through life experiences. But it's, it's the employers that have, I think, the biggest issue to overcome with whether a bachelor's or even a master's. I mean, something yeah. you can only. I see some professions asking for it that shouldn't require it and don't need it. Yeah, it, absolutely. And and those those aren't really, it, I'd say, forward thinking employers that are really going to attract the best talent because they're missing out on a, a, a huge talent pool um, that are these adaptable, very skillful, capable um, young men or young women. But, you know, and having that tick box, yeah, as, as an entry point is, is not going to get you the access to the right people. Um, you know, you, you look at what's happening with all the big consulting firms, with all the big tech firms, with all the big creative firms. They don't, the, the, the end result, the exams, the university is just not important anymore. Yeah, I think, I think, I think you're right. I think what, what COVID will bring is hopefully for, for whether it's exams or whether it's schools or whether it's employers or universities, is actually greater flexibility. Um, I don't think it's going to happen overnight, um, but there is just a more flexible approach, I guess, to everything really, working at home, working in the office, the route you take and, and, and the flexible hours and just do what you've got to do. You know, that's a lot of companies still don't think of that way, but they're going to have to change. And I think that flexibility may well start to seep into other areas like flexibility. Do you need a degree? Do you need the A-level? Do you need the GCSE? Is that absolutely yeah. required? Um, do you need to even be in the same country to do a job? You know, and, and does your English need to be absolutely perfect or can you still achieve this? So I think or I hope that we all become a bit more flexible. I still do think assessments are required. I still yeah. do think you have to have certain levels of um, intellect for intellect. I don't like using the word intellect, but certain levels of standards in, in various areas to go to the, to, into certain jobs. Yeah. I think that's essential. But the flexibility to look at other people and look at other ways of working, different countries, different cultures, I think will hopefully, hopefully improve things across the world. How well provisioned were Raha and you to actually be able to adapt and go to an online teaching model? Yeah, I think we were lucky. We, um, we, we've got a head of technology integration at our school and, 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 a, and a group of middle leaders who really champion IT. So we were using a lot of platforms already. We were very geared up. We had sort of 24 hours notice to turn it around, but we were working on it a couple of weeks prior to that just to get everyone, make sure they're really comfortable with the systems. It's never about teaching the kids. It's always about getting the teachers ready. Um, I've been observing some online lessons in the last week, and I'm absolutely blown away by the quality of the teaching and learning. It's, it's, I mean, I'm not the most IT savvy, but I've seen some teachers do stuff which I didn't even know was possible, and it's phenomenal. So... Um, so yeah, so we were ready, uh, and I think a lot of a lot of international schools in particular are ready um, because they often they're working on bring your own device. They've got the iPads, they've got the laptops because there's probably um, the, 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 the the families who go to international schools are paying high fees. They can afford to give this hardware to their children. A lot of state schools, whether that's in UK or wherever else. A lot of them don't have this stuff sort of just as standard. They haven't always got an iPad in the primary school. So schools have had to scramble around to get the kids the tools to be able to have the online learning. And that's been very difficult. Um, so, yeah, we were lucky. I, I think just, just sort of going, going slightly off track, I think one of the things that I hope comes out of this more than anything else 
we can talk about flexibility of working, we can talk about being online, the ability to talk to you now across a a different country and it just becomes second nature. I really hope that the biggest impact of this is actually education in the developing world. Um, Because yes, we can, if we can do this right now, we're seeing online learning, online lessons becoming a really big thing. I'm not entirely sure it's going to take off the way everyone thinks in, so let's say, the developed world. I think we still need face-to-face where we can. But you think of these remote parts where you maybe haven't even got buildings or parts of Africa. If we can get this quality into those schools and for those children, I, I think that's got to be one of the biggest things that COVID could possibly give us. So what have you learned from the process of lockdown remote learning and what things... Have you changed since? Educationally or as a leader? Um, why don't we go for both? So educationally first. So what, what have you changed? What have you had to adapt to? Ref- because whatever you put in place back in March is, is not the, always the right way. It, yeah. The important thing is to go, well, this is where we're starting with. We're going to get feedback and we're going to learn. We're going to change and refine. What things did you learn and what things did you adapt and change to, to be better? Uh, so I, I think that... One of the, 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 the one of the things that we've learned more than anything is, is as you just said, actually, is the ability to adapt quickly. You have to adapt quickly, and also children learn differently. Now we know that anyway. When they're in front of you, sitting in a class, you know you can see a child, you can see their facial expressions. Work with them. Online, it's much, much more difficult. No matter what you do in terms of asking them and questioning them, and we've actually seen some children flourish sitting at home, absolutely flourishing and doing better than they would do in a school, maybe because they're a little introvert, maybe because they, they don't like noise around them, and they just get on with their work. Others have really, really struggled, and they need interaction. So our, our approach to be more personalised education and understanding the children more, I think, has been one of the big things, and we're still adapting to it now. Um, I, a lot of people say to me, you know, this is now the future of education. We're going to go online with everything else. I, I'm not entirely sold on that. I think there will be changes. I think they're going to be enhancements. Um, but actually, I think the face-to-face teaching and learning in a classroom is, is critical. It doesn't mean you can't do self-study by dipping into a science specialist. It doesn't mean you, there aren't other ways of, of, of recording your work and, and assessing your work and, and, and teaching being delivered. But face-to-face, whether in a classroom or, or outside on a, on, a, on a patch of grass, I think is, is really, really essential. And I think all these people that think there's a whole revolution about to happen, I don't agree with that. I think there's some evolution, but not a revolution, because schools, schools, are, schools are important places, and, and our teachers understanding of a child's mood and the way they act and they interact on a daily basis and their individual is absolutely essential and you can't you'd never truly be able to do that online the same way yeah i agree and as long as we do evolve as long as we use this moment to go we've come a long way we've been thrown into the fire and we've all come out and gone you know education carried on we delivered some great stuff we've all improved some skills um, and developed ourselves as teachers. So there's a skill set now within the teaching community that has grown in itself, which is amazing. And that's, that's so, I've so been waiting for that to happen because not every, you know, teachers aren't expected to be really IT literate to deliver this, but they're saying finally finding their feet to adapt in this new environment. I agree. And, and children will get better as well. And they'll, they'll learn independently even more, uh, which I think is important. 
Yeah. Um, I want to talk around the role of thought leadership. You're quite big on LinkedIn. You're doing a lot on Twitter. How does that help you, your school, actually be more successful? I've, I've got to be honest. Someone does my tweeting for me. That sounds terribly, terribly arrogant. Right, right. That's it. That's, that's it. <laughs> I know. I'm debating whether or not I should tell you that. Yeah, I'm, I'm like, we're cutting that bit. Okay. So, so, so tell, no, tell, I'll tell you. No, no, I'll tell, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you for why. I, I, I think that, that what Twitter is all about is continual engagement and debate. And I, I, I simply don't think I would have the time to truly do it justice which is why someone does help me with that. Um, but I think LinkedIn for me is, I, I find a platform where it, you don't need to be constantly engaging back and forward every, every few minutes or few hours. Yeah. So it's easier to be just um, expressing things on there and posting things on there, which are highly associated with schools, a lot of PR in there, an awful lot of PR. Yeah. Um, it shouldn't just be about yourself as an individual. I think you've got to bring your organization into it as well and enhance your organization's role on the, in the globe, you know, its position and its reputation. I, th- I think for me, that's, that's where the social media is really, really important. Yeah, great. And it's great to see you adopting and sharing your thoughts and views. You're right. LinkedIn is a great platform. It's a professional place, a network to, to see great content, to see new ideas. Um, and we definitely uh, promote that with all our, with all our schools. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.